2: As we're in the middle of a series of really unlocking the secret of God's will for our life, and I hope you were able to be with us last week, and if you were unable to be here, I'd encourage you to get a copy of that message because it's kind of like the first leg of a three-legged stool on really unlocking God's... A will in our life and really knowing what that is and how vital that is. I hope you have your Bibles with you because we've been studying Romans and we're in that section of scripture. So if you will, turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. We covered this passage in depth last week. We kind of lay the groundwork or the foundation for understanding God's will. But today and next week, my desire is to be able to show you clearly from God's word what is God's will Now, that's uh, predicated upon the fact that I'm believing that you are really wanting to know God's will. And I believe if you really want to know God's will, that you take it the next step, which would be you'd want to know His will so that you would do His will. And so I want to bring you back to that. But knowing the will of God is pretty foundational for all believers. And I hope that that would be where you are. I know that uh, all my life I have faced decisions. Some of them were big decisions, Maybe career, where will we go, what will we do as a pastor, should we take this church or that church, and how long we should remain in that church. Sometimes it would involve such decisions on what kind of automobile we would drive and we would purchase and how we would invest our money. Often we would have to give advice and counsel to our kids and others that were in our faith family, and we always wanted to know what would be God's will. Now those are big things when they involve family members and fitness, your health, and Perhaps even your career and where you're going. But sometimes it's even a little bit less than that. And I'm going to show you next week that if we do these foundational truths first and they are much active in our life, then that last step will be to give you help in some of those grayer areas. Like uh, what outfit should you wear when you go to church today? This one or that one? Is there a will of God for that? And I'll explain how that fits in on those grayer areas next week. But before we get to that... There's no obligation for the Lord to reveal and give us that freedom to make those choices under His blessing if we're missing what He wants us to do at the very beginning. So let me just ask you a personal question. Are you facing a decision that you need to be making very soon in your life? Let me compartmentalize that for you. Are you facing a decision that's going to cause you to have to make a choice regarding a career, how long you should remain in this employment or at this location? Are you having to make a decision regarding your money, something that you're going to want to purchase or to invest? And you know, soon you have to make some of those decisions. How about your health? You're called upon to make a decision should you go this route or that route for treatment or medicine or doctor or help? Some of you might be facing a decision of where your kids would go to college, and some of you might even face a decision, you move away from here because we have military transferring out, other people are leaving, and you go into an area and you find that there are three good Bible teaching churches near your home. Which one would be the will of God for you to attend? How would you know God's will for your life? And so I know that uh, we're facing choices. God gives us the freedom to make those choices. But he doesn't just dump us into a world where we then are just left to kind of float through choices. He is a very active and intimate God with us. And he does have a plan for our life. And there's a purpose for our life. And he wants us to know what that will is. Now, there are some people thinking that maybe if I would um, do certain things, I could kind of find God's will, that it's so elusive that I've got to work real hard and fast and pray and almost become a monk and give up all of this stuff. And maybe if God's specially gracious to me, he'll reveal his will to me. Some are saying, you know, it's like uh, being on a merry-go-round and the brass ring goes by. If I get his will, fine. If I don't, it's okay. I'm still here for the ride in the Christian life anyway. It really doesn't matter. It's just kind of a lucky thing if I hit his will. And then there are those that feel like God is so distant. He has given me so much choice. It doesn't matter what His will is. He just says, just make the choice and find out if you really won when you finally get to heaven or not. Well, I don't know what your philosophy is for knowing God's will and doing God's will. I hope it's to do what God has to say in His word. Because when we are in the center of His will, there is a sense of joy. We would say in Hawaii, there's a sense of place that goes on. Peace we have. Because we're in the center of His will. And some of us know those times when we were. And we've enjoyed that intimacy with the Lord as things were happening. Even in the midst of challenges, we knew His will. And then there are times when I know I've made decisions without going the biblical route. i made the decision and I have been left with the consequences of it. And I still have some scars from those decisions. And the Lord uses those scars not to beat me down, but to use them as um, reminders for me to show me how important it is to go back to knowing what God's will really is. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like to kind of lay the groundwork because I'm going to give you six different principles or six different wills of God for our life. But to get to those six, I need to lay the the, the foundation first. So I want to go back over Romans chapter 12, meaning that if we don't activate Romans 12, 1 and 2 in our life, then when I give you 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6... You'll look at those, because we haven't really surrendered to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, and we'll look at those and scratch our head and say, I don't see how that fits into knowing God's will. Or, You mean that's God's will? I I don't know. It's got to be more than that. That's not as important to me. We really won't own His will until we do these other things first. So I'm going to ask you, do you really want God's will for your life? Do you believe that at His presence and at His side there's pleasures forevermore? Well, if you do, then let's go back to Romans chapter 12. And if you have your Bible, you might might want to mark some thoughts in here. They're going to be easy to remember. So to get into discovering his will before we actually state what his will is, let's look at it in verse 1. He begins by saying to those that are believers, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. So in your margin you could put the word salvation. For us to ever understand or even to perform his will, we have to be a born-again believer in Christ by faith alone. I'll unpack that in a moment. Then it says to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In your margin, you could write the word consecration or dedication. Once you come to the Lord by faith alone, then your next step is to dedicate yourself to the Lord for consecration. Now, you don't dedicate yourself to be saved. You dedicate yourself because you are saved. So we first have salvation, then we have consecration and dedication. Now it moves to verse 2 and be not conformed to this world, which would mean separation. Now, separation doesn't mean that we have to live in a monastery. What separation means is that we separate from the secular worldview and philosophy of life, which is really all about them or all about us, me, 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 itis type of thing. So we separate from the way the world would approach life. And that means if we're separating from something, we're then separating to something, which would be Christ, which is the next phrase, which would be transformation. But... Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So it's not just don't be conformed negative, it's also positive. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, if we choose to do that, salvation, consecration, dedication, separation, and transformation, look what the result will be. So that we will prove or discover what the will of God is. And I hope you have that underlined. If I do that, now I'm in the direction of knowing what God's will is for my life. And describe His will. It's good, it's acceptable, and it's perfect. So if I could put one word above all of that teaching, I would say that it has to do with the dynamic of submission to the Lord. Even to be saved, you have to submit to the Lord. Now let me qualify that. To become a Christian, I'm submitting to His way to get to heaven, which is by faith. I'm submitting to the fact that I need a Savior, it's Christ. I'm submitting to that truth. So all of it starts out with submitting to Christ. So now here's a practical question. Do you want to know God's will bad enough that you would be willing to submit to the Lord? Now if I look through scripture, I'm going to find that even Christ in his humanity, although we know he's deity, but when he was on the earth, that was that hypostatic union of the deity and the humanity together. You remember as he was heading to the cross, he said this, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Will you be willing to say to the Lord, every decision that you make, Lord, I want to know what your will is. It's not my will, but thy will, and I will do it, watch this, no matter the cost. And if you move into the book of Acts, you're going to see the launch of the New Testament church, and as you go through the entire book of Acts, you're going to find the attitude of the New Testament church was, thy will be done. We want to do the will of the Lord. So even as the new church was launched, it had the attitude of, I want to do what God's will is all about. Then Paul admonished believers by saying this, that doing the will of God from the heart. So it's not just I do God's will because I'm kind of gritting my teeth and forcing myself to do it because I've got to do it under obligation. It's no inside my heart I know that look what the Lord has done for me and I'm willing now to surrender myself for him. Now if you remember, let's go back to the illustration of Christ when he said, not my will be done, but thy will be done, he was willing to do the Father's will, and the Father's will was, you go to the cross, you take the sin of all the world upon yourself, you die a horrible death, and then you resurrect again. So in other words, all that Christ went through for us, he was doing the will of the Father. Now that was God's Father's will for Christ, and he did it. So I'm asking us now the question, and me too, am I willing to know his will and do it, no matter the sacrifice I have to make? Now, while Christ was sacrificing himself on the cross, the beauty of it was that he also faced the resurrection and then the glorification when he went to heaven. So when you and I surrender to the will of the Lord and whatever sacrifice we're willing to make to surrender to his will in our life, no matter the cost, there may be pain in it at the outset of it. But at the end of it, at our resurrection, we will stand before a judgment seat of Christ. And that seat of Christ where he is the judge will not determine whether or not we go to heaven or not. It'll be determined how much rewards that we will get and what kind of them based on were we willing to surrender to the Lord in our life and to do it his way from the heart with love. And that's the promise that he has. So if you're there, if you're saying, okay, I'm ready, what would be God's will for my life? There are six of them. Today I'm just going to cover three of them and I hope that you'll embrace these as I am doing that in my life. It is a great encouragement. So what would be the will number one? What would be the first one? Well, I think it has to start with this. It is God's will in my life, and that would be to be saved. Now, there are some of you that are on the outside of the faith, and you hear the word saved, and you don't really know what that means. What does it mean to be saved? I've heard of being saved from a burning building. Has that happened to you? Taking uh, someone out of a burning building? Maybe you've been saved from drowning. I remember one time many years ago I was in the Florida Keys and I was in a boating accident and I was underwater and at the time I was just, you know, swimming to the top and crying out unto God, Lord save me and sure enough a boat did come by and my last time going down and pushing my way to the top and I stuck my arm out and the sailboat whizzed right by where I was and there was a man on the boat that he had his arm in the water and he happened to grab my arm and he pulled me up into the boat. So as I saved from drowning, you betcha I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't that that happened to me. But ultimately, it's not talking about a temporal saving here in the physical world. It's really talking about an eternal salvation that no matter what I'm in here, I will have eternal life in the future. So I'm saved. It is God's will for us to be saved. Now, I'm speaking to you, but also a larger crowd. And because of that, there may be someone listening to me right now that isn't absolutely certain of going to heaven when you die. Let me ask you a question. Here's another one for you. If you were to die today when you drive out of the parking lot, and I've been here 10 years and I've already experienced two pedestrians killed right here on our property, right outside the door, right on the Pali Highway. I heard the thud. I saw the empty sneakers, the body on the side of the road. When they headed across the street, we had no idea that they would be hit. They were running to catch a bus. So we don't know when we're going to die. So if you did die and you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? Do you know how you would answer that? We watched a video before we began the message today. Here are these young people, all different kinds of young people, different ages, guys and gals, different views of salvation. Not one of them got it right. And if any one of them died, they would have not gone to heaven because they were giving their opinion of what it took to get to heaven but not God's way to get to heaven. So if God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer that? There is only one answer, and that is by placing your faith alone in Jesus Christ. So what is God's will for you? Right off the bat, it is God's will that you are absolutely certain beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you were to die today, you would go to heaven. Not hope you'd get there, not when I get to heaven I'll find out. No, you know today that you have eternal life because of what Christ has done for you on the cross. Look at this passage of scripture. Now there are many, but I picked out this one because it's so simple. It's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slow about his promise. Now that's in the context because people were saying, Look at how many bad people in the world, look at how many false teachers there were. How come God's not judging them? How come Jesus isn't coming back yet? He promised to come back. The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness. The critics that are out there saying, you know, the Lord just abandoned us. It goes on to say, But he is. The Lord is patient towards you. In other words, he's giving you more time. He's giving you more opportunities. Not wishing, and in some translations, not willing, not wishing, not desiring for any to perish. Now let's take the word any out of there and put your name there. He is not willing, he is not desiring, he's not wishing that you would perish. The opposite of being saved. But for all to come to repentance. And that word repentance doesn't mean a turn from sin. It's metanoia in the Greek, which is noia is mine. Mete is change. It's a change of thinking, not a change of behavior. That have been metamorphosis. So right now, he is not desiring that you would perish, but he is desiring that you would change your mind about what you need to do to go to heaven and place it in Jesus Christ. Maybe your first step would be not so much placing your faith in Christ. Your first step ought to be, do you want to go to heaven? Maybe that's what you need to change your mind about, that there is a heaven, that there is a Christ, that he is God, that it's not by works, it's only by faith, and that you need to trust him, and that you're a sinner and you need a savior. That all begins. And then place your faith alone in Jesus Christ. If you will, I want to take you to another passage of Scripture. I gave you the address in your notes, but I'd like you to actually see this passage. It's found in Matthew chapter 7. This is a good one because it talks a lot about, implies a lot about good things that people need to do to go to heaven in doing the will of God. And he's going to explain, what about good works? What about religious good works? Will that get me to heaven? So turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 7 and have your pens ready because next to this passage, you're going to want to write the cross reference to explain what this really means. All right, we're looking now at Matthew chapter 7. And let's look just at verse 21 through verse 23. All right, and I'll read it to you. Jesus is speaking. He says, not everyone who says to me, and you could circle the word says, not everyone who says to me, so in other words, they're talking, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. That means there are a lot of people that will claim the name of the Lord. Yeah, I know the Lord. I said the Lord. I follow the Lord. Yes, Lord, I pray to the Lord. I know the Lord. Praise Jesus. Glory to God. He says, not everybody who uses the name Lord, Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven. So that's important to know that no matter how much you pray, no matter how much you speak the Lord's name, that alone does not guarantee that you have eternal life. Then it says, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So now the question would be, all right, what is the will of the Father? I will do the will of the Father so I can enter into heaven. It just said, just naming the name of the Lord won't get me to heaven. So, what's the will of the Father? Well, before he gives us that answer, look in verse 22. He goes on to say, Many will say, circle the word say there again. Many will do on the outward side. They'll say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. In other words, when they stand before the Lord. Did not we prophesy in your name? That's interesting. Didn't we do that? Won't that let me get into heaven? And then it goes on to say, And in your name cast out Demons? I mean, not only do we preach, not only do we speak the words of God, the words of Christ, good words. He said, we also did special signs in dealing with the devil here. We cast out demons. I mean, you can't get any better than that. And also, in your name we perform many miracles. We did outstanding, powerful works that could not be explained. And by the way, that's interesting. It's implying now. A person who is not a believer that was prophesying, saying that they could do that, saying they could cast out demons, saying that they did miracles. Wouldn't you think, logically, if you'd named the name of the Lord, you prophesied, you cast out demons, and you did these miracles, wouldn't logic tell you? That's such a good person. Look at how religious. I mean, they're better than we are. Shouldn't they go to heaven? Well, what does Jesus say in verse 23? And then I will declare to them, to them who? To them who says, Lord, Lord, to them who say... I've done these prophecies, I've done these uh, uh, miracles, I've cast out demons. To them I will declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So now the question is, is, if I need to do the will of the Lord, and those four things, saying the name of the Lord, prophesying, casting out demons, and doing miracles, if I'm nothing more than a lawless person, even though I did these religious things, what would be the will of the Lord? In your margin, you're going to write down John chapter 6 now and verse 40. John 6, verse 40. And let's flip over to there. John 6, verse 40. So now the question is, is what is the will of the Lord specifically in my salvation? All right? God's will is for me to be saved. I get that. But what do I need to do? What is the will of the Lord for my salvation? John six forty. Here's what you read. For this is the will of my Father. Remember how that connects back? What's the will of the Father? This is the will of the Father. That everyone... And that would include those that are reading and hearing and seeing this. If you behold the Son through his word, you are looking at. The, you can't see him now because he's resurrected into heaven. You could see him in the days of, of when John had uh, written this. The point of the matter is he was visible then. Now you see Christ. Christ then was the living Christ. Now you see the written Christ, but it's all Christ. And I will build that case a little bit later on this morning. So it goes on to say here, if you behold the Son... And then it says, and believes in him will have eternal life. So what is the will of the Father? That you believe in him. What is the result? You will be saved. You will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up, who up? The one who believes in him on the last day. So that means that you have a resurrection looking forward to, to look forward to in your life. Believe on him. Stay with me in verse 40. Notice what it doesn't say. It says that everyone who beholds the Son and behaves will have eternal life. Nope. Everyone who names the name of the Lord, prophesies, does, uh, casts out demons, and then does miracles, will have eternal life. No. It says whoever believes. It doesn't say whoever behaves and believes. It doesn't say whoever behaves and believes, and it stops there. It says whoever believes and behaves. Nope. It only says believes, and here's the operative object. In him, will have everlasting life. So look up here for just a moment. I plead with every one of you. The very first step for you to really understand what the will of the Lord is, is for you to trust Christ as your Savior. And so by doing Romans 12, 1 and 2, it also started out implying brethren means that you're saved. So the first step is to trust Christ as Savior. So now you might ask me back and say, "Hey, Pastor, what do I do now to trust Christ as my Savior? Well, I'm not going to backload the gospel by telling you got to be baptized by immersion, keep the commandments, join a church, stop your smoking, cussing, drinking, all that stuff. No, I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says. is to believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That's the context of John. Believe that Jesus Christ is God. And now believe in him means you take him in his word. You believe what he says when he says trust in him. So I take him in his word. I'm going to do what he tells me to do. And I'm going to take my faith. And I'm going to will my faith by placing it in Jesus Christ in him alone. Now you could do it through a prayer. As long as you're not depending upon the act of praying that gets you into heaven. It is a volitional choice where you're transferring your trust into Jesus Christ. So it's not just enough to know that salvation is by faith. It's not just enough to know that you should trust Christ as Savior. It is you willfully placing your faith alone in Christ. So that is step one. So those that might be listening to this and you're wanting to know God's will and you have not placed your faith alone in Christ and done a lot of good social deeds or a lot of religious deeds, you still will not fully grasp nor be able to then perform the will of God until you have trusted Christ as Savior. And I I wish I wasn't up at this pulpit so much. I wish I was in your backyard, Lanai, uh, and putting my arm around you and just saying, please, my friend, please place your faith in Christ. The consequence of not is... I'm not doing that is horrible in hell, but the practical consequence is that you're kind of like a you're like a leaf in a windstorm. And like a leaf in the windstorm of life, you're going to blow everywhere and you're going to want the best for your life, but you'll never fully discover it. You might accidentally hit on it here or there, but you'll never know, never know, is this really what God's will is for your life? So submission begins with. All right, Lord, I'm trusting in you as my Savior. Let's look to number two. We're only going to give you three today and three next week. You've got to get all of these because these are the only six that are found, all right, that are specifically saying this is the will of God. So number two is, what is God's will for my life? God's will for my life is to be spirit-filled, to be spirit-filled, all right? Now, some of you might not understand what that means. So let me read the passage here slowly, and I'll kind of take you through it, and then I'll explain what spirit-filling is. And it's interesting because in order now, we're going to be saved. And I like to say, once you trusted Christ as Savior, you have the Spirit within you. Now you have to be filled by the Spirit. What does that mean? So let's look in verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 5. Here's what you read. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now when I read that phrase alone, do not be foolish, in some translations it says, do not be ignorant, or I would have you not to be ignorant, brethren. When I read those phrases, and it's found a lot, you're going to find that that's implying that you and I can be ignorant. If it says, don't be ignorant, don't be foolish, don't be stupid, don't be without knowledge in this, it tells me that I have a propensity to miss this. And he's reminding us, don't be foolish in this, you better get it. And then he says, understanding what the will of the Lord is. So he says, you better understand what the will of the Lord is. And that's an injunction to all of us. So then he starts out by saying, all right, what is it? He says, and do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And when you read that, don't be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, you might say, why Why would it throw in that, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the... That seems so weird to put that in there. That's kind of like a major statement against drinking and getting drunk. Well, I do think it's part of all of that, but I think it's, it's more of an analogy so that we would understand what being filled with the Spirit might look like. The people that he's writing this to are coming out of pretty much a debauched life, very similar to what we might see people in the world here today. They were just bombarded with alcohol. You would see the phrase mixed drink in wine in the Old Testament. The mixed drink would be much more potent